can open your word to Psalm 132. The psalm says, O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephraphra. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to, this, to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown of his head will be resplendent. Psalm 132. This psalm is uh, it's unlike the others. Uh, dramatically, so so much so it threw me for a loop as I started Sunday night last week preparing for it. Uh, you know, most of the Psalms of Ascent, they're, they're 10 verses or less, some as short as three. Last week we saw three verses. Um, this one's 18 verses long, and it has in it history. You know, we have Israel discussed, we have David talked about, we have the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem. There are oaths being made by David and oaths being made by God, and there are prayers being uh, lifted up to God and prayers being answered. There's much here, um, and, and it would be easy for us to get bogged down in it. But they included it in the Psalms of Ascent because it is one of all the 14 Psalms, 15 Psalms that we look at, this one reveals the beautiful covenant relationship that God establishes with his people. And he reveals it in great detail. And so as they, were, as they would sing these songs and they'd make their way to the Jerusalems, the pilgrims, this would be one that would remind them who they are in relationship with God and what that relationship looks like. That it was truly a covenant relationship and not something other. In fact, in verse, 32, in verse 2, uh, David starts off. There are two sections here, verses 1 through 10, where David makes oaths to God. And then there are verses 11 through 18, where God makes an oath and promises to David. And, and they're both made with an understanding of, this is how we're going to relate to one another. This is, David says, I'm entering this relationship with you. You're entering it with me. And it's going to be based upon a covenant promises and fulfillment of those. And so this morning, I'd like us to look at four things in light of this psalm. Number one, the nature of covenant relationships. I mean, what does a covenant relationship look like? And the second thing, I, w- I want to look at the oaths that David made, and then the oath that God made to him. And then lastly, we'll look at the ultimate oath maker and keeper. And of course, we know that to be Christ himself. So number one, what is the nature of a covenant relationship? That term, I don't even think I heard that term until I came into religious circles. 
And if I had, it was probably something like on an SAT prep you know, test or something like that. But covenant is not something, when we use that term, it used to be used in the culture, especially pertaining to marriages. And so when, when we think of covenant, oftentimes we think of contract. And there are similarities, but it's not a good parallel, um, especially when it comes to identifying what relationships look like in context to covenant or contract. In a contract, the relationship that's established is usually about you. It's how you can make your life better. It's how you can protect yourself from liability. It's how it can benefit you in a contract. And the other person in the contract is, they may benefit also, but really they're kind of a means to an end when we engage in a contractual relationship. Questions we ask are things like, well, how will this make my life better? How will it make my life more secure if I enter this contract? What blessing will I derive from it? Um, what, the, the end isn't the relationship with that person who's in the contract. It's about you. And several years ago in our culture, marriage went from being covenant Bible to contract cultural. And, and therefore, the same questions were asked before people got married. You, you would engage in a dialogue and say, if I marry this person, how will it benefit me? How will I be better off? More importantly, if it doesn't benefit me, how can I get out of it? I mean, what, what's the exit clause, right? And we call those what? Prenuptial agreements. Things don't work out. When you bail, this is what happens. And so as soon as the institution of marriage went to contract instead of covenant, you'll read things like you did this past week with Kim Kardashian and $15 million and then 72 days later, divorce. Now, that, that's an expensive contract, right? Now, you say, oh, well, yeah, but she actually made money on it. If you approach marriage like that or relationships like that, it shouldn't be shocking. I mean, everybody was, even Hollywood was, was shocked by it. I'm thinking, why? It was a contract. It wasn't working out. So what do you do? You break the contract. You get out of it, right? Covenant is radically different in this way. It redefines relationship. How two people or two parties engage in relating one to another. Very different from contract. Covenant says this. The person entering it enters it fully. And they enter it not to get something out of it. They will be blessed in the healthy covenant relationship. But they enter it to bless the other person. To lift the other party up. It's an other-centered rather than self-centered approach toward relating to people and, of course, to God. And so in verse 2, what David does, he says, I'm going to make certain oaths. We call them vows, but I'm going to make an oath, promises of how I'm going to relate to God in this covenant relationship. And then God comes back in verse 11 and says, I'm going to make oaths to you too. And this is how I'm going to relate to you. And we're going to enter a relationship that's not contractually based, but covenant based. And they make these oaths that define what that relationship looks like. The word oath in the Hebrew, it's Shabbat, and it's used over 180 times in the Old Testament. And it's used in several different contexts. But in the context here, it's an oath given to affirm a promise in the relationship they're entering into. So they're saying, I'm going to go into this relationship and I'm going to live like this, be like this, relate like this to you, regardless of how you relate to me. It's not contingent upon your behavior. So David says, I'm going to love you like this no matter if you don't love me back, God. And God says, I'm going to love you like this, David, even if you reject me. Some of the oaths we saw early on in sacred scripture, God makes an oath to Noah to do what? Or I should say, to not do what? What does he say to Noah? I will not, I will not flood the earth. I will not destroy it like this. Hmm? And then he gives us the rainbow. It's an oath. To Abraham, he made an oath to Abraham. and said, I will make you, Abraham, the father of many nations. And he made this promise in a covenant type relationship. And what I love about it is the, the parties come into it 
not thinking about themselves, but thinking about the other party. And they come into it saying, listen, I'm going to fulfill my part, even if you don't. In the context of a marriage, it's the wife saying, I'm going to love my husband for better or for worse, right? We know the words, until death, even if he stops loving me. And the husband says the same to the wife. That there's, there's a, a stability and an ability for, for transparency and trust to develop because of that grounding nature of the relationship itself. You might say a contract is about convenience and a covenant relationship is about commitment. One Bible scholar put it like this. He said, covenant expresses a novel element of the religion of ancient Israel and the Christian faith. The people, listen, are bound in relationship to the one God, Yahweh, who makes an exclusive claim upon their loyalty and worship and social life. They, the people, express God's gracious commitment and faithfulness and thus establish a continuing covenant relationship one to another. And you know what's amazing? No other religion in the world, no other philosophy looks at relating to God through covenant except Christianity, the Judeo-Christian worldview. It is truly unique. And what's so awesome about it is it changes the way you live. It actually will transform who you are, how you live, how you see yourself, and how you see God through this covenant relationship. How so? The oaths that are made. Let's, let's look at David's first. Verses 2 through 5. David swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. Verse 3, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. This oath, he's determined, he says, listen, there's no place for the Ark of the Covenant. There's no place for God to come down, the Shekinah glory to come down. I'm going to make that, right? And we we know from Scripture he doesn't, his son Solomon does, but that he's determined to find a secure, safe place for the ark to come, for God's presence to come down, and the people to worship, right? And this is not about him. He desires it, one, for God, and two, to bless the nation of Israel. Now you say, wait a minute, God coming down, space and time, is he bound by it? Uh, No, he's not. David wasn't saying, I'm not going to sleep until I have a place for you because you have no place, God, right? I mean, even Solomon got this. Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 8, in the completion of the temple, he says, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less the simple temple I have built. He got it. I'm not talking about God being squeezed into, you know, a temple or a tabernacle or a little tiny box, right? It's not what he's talking about. Nor could there be a place holy enough, majestic enough, beautiful enough for God to dwell. But God said to Moses, I want to. He says, make a tabernacle, create the Ark of the Covenant, and I will come. I want to. And so, of course, Moses did. Now, that Ark of the Covenant, early on it was in Shiloh. And someone mentioned it this morning. It was Melissa in Sunday school. It was in Shiloh for a while. And then, of course, in the time of Eli, they decided wisely or unwisely to take the Ark of the Covenant out into battle with them, to take on the Philistines, saying, you know, if we bring God out into battle, he'll help, Right? Well, that plan didn't go well. Not only did they lose the Philistines, but the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. God was kidnapped, right? I mean, it's an amazing thought, God being kidnapped by the Philistines. That didn't go well either. Seven months later, they're like, get this thing out of here. Whatever you do, get the Ark out of here. And so it made its way back to a place called kiriath Jerim, into Abinadab's house. And it stayed there for 20 years. And in many circles within Israel, they didn't know where it was. So not only was God kidnapped, then he was lost, right? And so we get this great passage of them actually finding out where he was, and they go and get him. But before I get to that, I want you to notice something. David's oath is sacrificial. 
And that's a characteristic of covenant relationships. Not only I will enter and I will be faithful regardless of your behavior, but I'm going to engage in this relationship sacrificially. It's going to cost me something. I'm not going to love out of my surplus, but out of my need. And so we see David say, I mean, David says, um, look, look at verses 3, 4, and 5 again. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will, not, I will allow no sleep. He didn't literally, he didn't go to bed. And literally, he did not sleep. But the gravity of someone saying, I will not rest. I will not sleep until this happens. I mean, how precious is sleep to us, right? I, how many people were really happy last night because you got an extra hour? You got an extra hour. You're like, right? Some of you said to me, I will name no names, said, I actually took advantage of that. Right? And I anticipated that and I stayed up an extra hour late. David says, No sleep for my eyes. I will not rest without finding a place for him. Now, this is in many ways contrary to how we do ministry today. Oftentimes, our ministry, contemporary ministry, it's done only when it doesn't hurt us, only out of our surplus, only when it's convenient, only when I don't lose any sleep. I mean, I'd love to minister, I'd love to help. You know, but I don't have any time. And that means I don't have any time that's convenient for me. Remember, convenience is contractual. Commitment is covenant. I don't have any time. And if I make time, that means I've got to lose something. And that what I might lose is something I might, might be very precious to me, like getting eight, nine, ten hours of sleep a night. We do ministry oftentimes with strings attached as well, saying, we'll bless you if, we'll bless you, if you come to church. And we'll really bless you if you start putting some money in the tithing. And we'll really, really bless you if you start actually serving. And so we, we want to bless people, but we want all these strings attached. That's not covenant. David says, listen, no strings attached, God. I'm going to go out, and I'm, I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to sleep until the ark is in Jerusalem, and there's a place for you to reside so that we can worship you. No strings. First part of the oath. Second part of the oath. He promises to worship the Lord rightly. Look at, look at verses 6 through 10. The psalmist writes, we heard it we heard it, the Ark of the Covenant, in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the field of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the Ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy for the sake of David, your servant. Do not reject your anointed one. And so, literally, they heard... They weren't sure exactly where the ark was. They heard that it was uh, in, in Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem. Okay, so David's home, Jesus' home, where he was born. And they find out there, this is what most of the commentators, they find out it's there. This is the, where they get the news. And they find out it's in Ja'ar, which is also the same as Kiriath, Jerum, same place. And they go and they get it because they want to bring it back to Jerusalem. They want to bring it to Mount Zion. Why? I mean, what's the big deal? It's been lost for 20 years. Why bring it to Jerusalem? It tells us right here, so they could worship God at his footstool. Not only does that show right position, but presence. So that we can worship God in his presence to be before him. When he comes down on the mercy seat, when the Shekinah glory comes down, we can worship him with him being there. I mean, that is the essence in the heart of worship, right? Being in the presence of God. If we gather like this and we pray and we sing and we proclaim the gospel and God doesn't show up, it's not worship. It's false prayer, it's song, and it's someone talking. But when he shows up, when his presence is made real amidst his people, then real worship 
takes place. And so that's why they want him back, so they can worship him. How? In holiness and in grace. And he says here in verse 9, May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. And there were two parts to this, and both are imperative. He says, on the one hand, if we're going to come before you, we must come before you righteously. And so he asked, the prayer is that the priests would be clean as they come into the presence in the tabernacle or the temple to intercede for the nation before God. That there would be a holiness to our worship. And then secondly, that there'd be joy as well. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't come into a time like this or a prayer time or a study time cowering thinking, you know what, my life is so screwed up, God's going to smite me and turn me into a pillar of salt. You know, that it's not like that. There would be great joy as a result of this holy God extending his grace. And so he says here that the saints would sing for joy. It would be an overflowing of the love that they're experiencing. That they would be called children of God. That they'd be identified and brought in as a community of believers. That they would be set apart and then filled with the Holy Spirit. And they would experience God's grace and love and his mercy. That, I mean, that's reason to sing for joy. That's reason for joy to abound in your life. So David prays, let's come before him as holy people and let's come before him as joyful people. Now, if we just reflect for a minute on that, how often do we come into the context of a Sunday morning without the oath of righteousness on our lips? I mean, how often do we come into this place with the previous night's sin still on our breath? Or we come into this place under the power of unconfessed sin, broken relationship, inordinate desires, still there, still moving. And we haven't come in here seeking forgiveness, repenting and turning and confessing the sins. And we wonder why we come in and we go, there's a disconnect. I don't think I hear God. I leave here and there isn't transformation of character. And I don't, the Holy Spirit's moving, but not in me. What's happening? If we do not come to God rightly, and that means, you say, well, I'm not sinless. Yeah, but we could call, we're called to confess our sins. And he cleanses us and makes us holy. How often do we not do that? How often do we come into a, a worship service like this and we sing, and, and we kind of sing, you know, amazing grace. What's the words again? I mean, that, is that joy? That's not, Right? And it's not something you say, oh, I need to work myself up. There should be joy that flows from the covenant relationship you have with God through Christ, right? So when you sing, it should be coming out, a joyful song, a joyful noise. How often do we sing? And it's not like that. And so what do we say? Pastor needs to tell us to sing. You know, Jim needs to be more forceful and sing louder, sing joyfully. That doesn't work. But if you see Christ clearly, if you see the relationship clearly, and you pray for that, because David prays for that that the saints will sing for joy for all the right reasons. I know this. You get a glimpse of the glory of God. You get a glimpse of the sacrifice of Christ. You come into a worship service like this, and Christ has been presented to you in prayer or through his word, and you will sing, and there'll be great joy. So David promises God this. He says, listen, I'm not going to rest until i got a place for you to reside. And I'm going to pray that when we come before you in this new place, in the tabernacle temple, that we will come before you as a holy people and as a joyful people. Those are the oaths that that David makes to God. And God goes, all right, I hear the oath. I hear the promise. I can one-up you on that. God says, listen, I'm going to make promises to you too, David. And he begins. Look at verses 11 and 12. He starts off and he says, listen, I'm going to promise you lineage, a throne, 
Look for how long the Lord swore an oath to David. A sure oath. I love that. An emphasis. This oath will not be broken. It will not be revoked. A sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. Verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne. How long? Forever and ever. He says to David, I heard your oath. I heard the promises. That's right. That's the right way to relate to me. Now, I'm going to tell you I'm going to relate to you. I'm going to make someone from your bloodline a king forever. Now, when you first read that, at least I did, you read verse 12 and you got the if-then statement, right? If your sons do this, then I will do that. And he's saying, if your kids behave themselves, David... They don't screw up their lives and the lives of everybody else. If your kids behave themselves and your grandkids behave themselves, then I'm going to keep you on the throne of Israel. If they don't, then I won't. And you say, hmm, that sounds more like a contract than a covenant. And you know what? You're right. That is a contract. And that was part of it, right? But there's two parts to this. If you're, if you're tired, there's no excuse because you've got an extra hour of sleep. So if you're looking tired, you know, pray that God gives you, you know, some energy right now. Let's look at this. There are two parts of this. One's eternal and one's temporal. There's a temporal promise, a conditional promise, a contractual promise made to David saying, listen, if your children follow me, if your grandchildren love me, if they submit to me, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless you by keeping your family line, your lineage on the throne. You're going to continue to rule. And we read the Bible and what happens? They don't. His children are screwed up. And the grandchildren are really screwed up. And what happens? The throne's lost. The throne is lost completely. Not just David lineage not ruling. No throne at all. Right? No Israel. No kingship. You say, well, how can he make the promise? Is God lying here? What's going on? There's a temporal and eternal, eternal promise. Verse 11 is an eternal covenant promise. Look with me. He said, here's an oath I will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. And you know what that is? That's the covenant. That's the unconditional, eternal covenant God saying, David, no matter how bad you mess it up, and you're going to mess it up, and no matter how bad your kids are going to mess it up, and they're going to mess it up, I am going to remain faithful. And I, by my sovereign grace, am going to make sure that one of your descendants sits on a throne forever and ever. He says, not because of you, not because of your goodness, and certainly not because of how well your family has followed me and submitted to me and loved me. That's not why. I'm going to, this is a, this is a covenant verse and it's a messianic verse. And what he's saying is, from your bloodline, I'm going to bring a king that will reign forever. And he won't just be a king, he'll be a savior. And he won't just be a savior for Jerusalem and Israel, he'll be a savior for all mankind. God makes that covenant and says, I will keep it unconditionally. You say, oh, what does that mean? This is his covenant oath promise. He says to David, I'm going to do this. Period. No if then, no contractual out. He says, I'm going to do this. Why does he do it? It says because he desires to. I love that. He desires to do this. Centuries later, we are told in Luke chapter 1 that this successor to the throne will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And you say, I know that heir. I know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. That's who it is. So this promise was fit, fulfilled completely, not because of, of David's sons behaving correctly or living in accordance with the covenant, but because God so desired and he made Christ king. So the first part of the oath 
that God makes to David blesses us immeasurably because that's the covenant promise of a savior for us. And then he gets really specific and he actually gives us four aspects of the promises that he gives to us in verses 13 through 16. Was he obligated to make these? Absolutely not. Did we deserve for them to be made? Absolutely not. He does this. He makes these oaths and these promises out of his love for us. And let's, let me, I want to look at them briefly, and then I want to look at them in light of Christ. First, he makes a promise to David to give us relational security. Relational security with his presence. Look at verses 13 and 14. In verses 13 and 14, he makes this promise. He said, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned. Why? For I have desired it. And what he's saying is this. I'm going to make my place with your people. Jerusalem will be my home on earth. Your people will be my people. The church, of course, takes this promise and extends out through all the ages, throughout all the world, throughout all human history. That God is saying, I'm going to abide with you. I'm going to have a real presence with you. How long? Forever and ever. And just in that promise alone, he's saying, I'm going to give you a relational security that you cannot have here. No matter what covenant is made with a husband, a wife, or children, or friends, or family members. I'm going to give you a relational security with me because I'm promising to be with you forever. He makes that promise. It's an oath. Number two, he promises to meet his children's physical needs. He says, I'm going to take care of your relational needs by being in your presence. I'm going to take care of your physical needs. Look at verse 15. He said, I will bless her, Israel, with abundant provisions. Her poor will I satisfy with food. And what he's saying is, listen, your food, your shelter, your clothing, your daily bread, I'm making an oath with you as your God, as your father, you being my children, that I will take care of those needs. I, will, I promise to. Number three, he says, I'm going to take care of your spiritual well-being as well. Look at verse 16. He says, I will clothe her priests with salvation. Now, you know, verse 16 is a direct answer to verse 9. Did you notice that? David says in verse 9, he prays the priest will be clothed in righteousness. And God answers with something much, much better. God comes back and says, listen, you ask for righteousness, I'm going to give you salvation. You ask to be holy, I'm going to give you holiness. In fact, the word in the Hebrew for salvation, it's yasha. And it literally means to be set free, to be, um, to be saved, to be white as snow from the sin that contaminates us. So God promises relational security, physical security, spiritual security, and then lastly, emotional well-being, emotional security. Look at verse 16. Again, he says, her saints will ever sing for joy. I'm going to bring to you, I promise. There'll be a time when there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more broken relationships, no more broken bodies. I promise. There will be a time when you will enjoy, have joy that's everlasting, that's never taken away. So he says to David, I'm going to give you a throne that never ends. And he says, I'm going to give you an eternal happiness and a peace, what we call blessedness. He says, I'm going to, I promise to meet all of your relational needs, your physical needs, your spiritual needs, and your emotional needs. What more do you want? I make an oath with you, my people, relationally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. 
that I will satisfy it all, infinitely more than you could possibly imagine. Now, I don't know what struggles you came in with this morning, but I would hazard to guess it was in one of those four categories. You got relational struggles, you got emotional issues, you got spiritual, you got physical issues like me right now. God says, I'm making an oath with you that I will take care of these. Now, as a pastor, I can say these things, I can boldly declare them to you. And you say, that's what you're supposed to do, right? And I, and I am, I mean, I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to get this from the word and say, this is what's true. This is what God has revealed. But if you're like me and I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, this whole thing, you know, I'm a bit cynical or I'm a lot cynical and this thing sounds too good to be true. And my parents told me, if it's too good to be true, what? It probably is, right? I mean, you remember that? Your parents saying, oh, you know, you're not going to get that, uh, that $50,000 car for five bucks on eBay, right? It's just not going to happen. You're getting ripped off. If you're waiting for the disclaimer, the catch, you know, the fine print, if you're waiting for the guy at the end of the commercial who says something like, all promises stated are subject to verification. Only one promise at this price. Promise number JOHN316. Offer valid through November 15, 2011. See participating churches for details. That's what you're waiting for, right? There isn't one. There's no guy with the weird voice at the end of the commercial that says this is all bogus. God is saying, I am making an oath with you through my son that I will bring these things to pass no matter how hard they are to imagine right now in the midst of your suffering. And it's hard right now for many of us. He's saying it's not a contract, it's a covenant. Now, I struggle with that as well because I'm thinking, you know, I'm not dealing with a used car dealer here. This is the holy God of Israel. This is not a a broker at Wells Fargo I'm trying to secure a loan for for my house. This is the holy God of Israel. And he's calling me into a right relationship with him. And he says he's going to bless me even though I'm unholy. Yes. He said through his son and the sacrifice Christ made, he's going to come in and make a covenant with me and love me and give me relational security and emotional stability and physical well-being and spiritual joy. He's going to do that even though I'm running from him all the time, even though I'm in a constant state of rebellion. Yes. It's covenant, not contract. Now, if you're like me and you keep thinking, but I am so sinful. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, that he cannot tolerate wrong. Well, that's me and most people I know. So how is he going to do this? I mean, how could he promise, make an oath to bless us in this way, being as unholy as we are, being as stiff-necked as we are? How is it going to be possible? How could he make these promises? Because it sounds too good to be true to me, and I have my parents' voice ringing in my ears. It is. And God says, no, it's not. Because of the last point, and that is the covenant maker and keeper. Go back to verse 17. The psalmist says, Here I will make a horn grow, I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame but the crown on his head will be resplendent, brilliant. And what he's saying, I'm promising success. I'm promising victory. I'm promising joy. I'm promising eternity. And life. I'm making all these radical promises. God's saying, I'm promising these things to you. So even when you see that crown fading in your life and you think it's not that resplendent, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it physically. I'm not going to make it spiritually. God's saying, I, I will make sure it happens. He promises us that. And so the psalmist is calling us to remember these things and then call upon them to be fulfilled. You go, but how will they be fulfilled? How? 
How can God do this? He's holy, we're not. He's righteous, I'm unrighteous. How can he bring these things to pass? In Acts chapter 3, Peter, he heals the, the cripple on the steps. Remember this? Right, right outside the gate, beautiful. And he heals this beggar. And then he, he stands up at Solomon's colonnade and he gives us the answer. How God's going to make the oath, the covenant fulfilled. Listen to what he says. Peter says to this crowd, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate. You disowned, you disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God, listen, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. This is how he did it. Saying this his, that, that his Christ would suffer. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Paul emphasizes this again in Acts 13. He said, we tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, the oath that he made, he fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. You say, well, that's the simple answer. It's the only answer. It was the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ by which all these oaths and all these promises made by God in covenant come to pass, both now and forever. You say, how so? Your physical well-being. I've never met someone who says, you know what? I just enjoy suffering physically. I love waking up sick. I love going to bed sick. No one talks like that, right? That's tautology. It's craziness. People say, I want to be well. I don't feel well. I want to be well, right? And so we do all kinds of things. We exercise and we eat well and we take lots of vitamins. And if you're like me, it still doesn't work, right? Fallen bodies, they break. They're broken. God physically came. In the flesh, to deal with our physical needs. How so? First of all, he came as a God that we can relate to because he can relate to us. He walked for 33 and a half years in our shoes. He knows. He knows the need and desire to be fed and to be clothed and to have a home. He knows that. It's not unknown to him. He lived that life. In fact, he lived it and he modeled it for us perfectly. Because never do we see Jesus scrambling to make sure he's got an extra cloak. Never is Jesus worried about having enough food or a place to stay. There's no worries there. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, he reveals this to us clearly. He says, do not worry. Let me say that again, my beloved. Do not worry. We could just meditate on that for hours, right? Do not worry. He said, do not worry what shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear. He said, the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. He already knows. Therefore, he's going to give them to you. And then he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things he'll give you as well. Stop worrying. He'll take care of it. And so Christ comes and he models for us a stressless life, a worry-free life. Very different than how we live, hmm? But something else, which, I, you know, in meditating on this and studying this week that came out, 
he also gives us a glimpse of what this physical completion will look like. Why is it that Jesus healed? You ever wonder that? I mean, he gave sight to the blind. He enabled those who could not hear or speak to hear and speak, right? He, he cured lepers. He stopped people from bleeding to death. He, he rose people from the dead, right? People were dead, and he brings them back to life. He enables people that could not walk to walk. But why? I mean, surely Jesus knew that they were going to get sick and die again. So what is this, just some really bad recurring dream? You were sick and you died. I'm going to bring you back to life. Why? So you can get sick and die again. I mean, what, what did Lazarus have to say? Really, Lord, I got to do this again? And that's what happened. So why would he do this? So, oh, I know. I learned this in Sunday school. It was for the Father's glory. It would reveal his, his messiahship, that he was the one. And that's true, right? Because John the Baptist asks, are you the one? And Jesus says, yeah, go, go tell John. The blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk. And that's good. That's a right answer. But there's something else. Every single time Jesus healed, he gives us a glimpse of the the redemptive plan that he's engaged in. Every single time. He enabled someone who could not see to see. says, that's how it's going to be. You'll all be able to see. Every time he gave someone the ability to hear who could not hear, he says, that's how it's going to be. You're going to have perfect hearing. Perfect hearing, perfect sight. Bodies without cancer, without bacteria, without viruses. <laughs> Bodies without bad knees or bad backs or pancreases that don't work so you have to be on insulin. Bodies that are, are not underweight or overweight or lacking hair. I mean, imagine the beauty of the physical body that he's going to give us. And every time he healed, he's giving us a glimpse of what that ultimate physical resurrection is going to be like. And it's going to be glorious. And he says, listen. When your body's breaking down, know that I will redeem it. When your body's failing, know that in the midst of this struggle, that one day it's going to be perfect again. Perfect. And so through his life, he comes and he says, I'm going to make sure. And of course, we know this on the cross. His body was completely broken. It was literally disintegrated so that our bodies would be made whole. He made a sacrifice for us for our physical well-being. Now, I know we don't talk about that much in Christian circles, but Jesus was concerned about your physical well-being. He is concerned about it right now, okay? So, number one, through Jesus' life, he fulfills the oath of God ensuring our physical well-being. Now, if that's true, if it's through Christ's life that he ensures physical well-being, then it was through his death, most certainly, that he ensures our spiritual well-being, that we will be well spiritually now and forever. How so? Spiritual well-being, or I should say, a spiritual illness is the result of sin, right? When sin came in, it destroyed the relationship we had with God. It brought about spiritual death. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning in in Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, that that conversation that took place between Satan and the woman... Remember he said to her, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And Satan says, what? You will surely not die. AKA God's a liar. I'm telling you the truth. You won't die. And then you continue to read the story. What happened? They ate it. And they didn't die, right? So what? 
Was Satan telling the truth? Was God lying? I mean, was God being one of those parents that says, listen, Johnny, you do that one more time, and it's no video games for a month. Put the cat down, right? Leave the dog alone. Was God being like that? No. God said, you eat, you will die. And they died. They died spiritually. They died physically as a result as well, many years later. But they died spiritually. On the spot. The moment that they turned from God and tried to embrace their own glory, they experienced spiritual death. Why? Because sin made its way in. And sin created a separation between God and man. And in that moment, and for all human history since, we have experienced spiritual death. Every single person ever born has experienced that death. That sweet, intimate, personal, life-sustaining relationship we had with God before the fall as a result of sin was broken. Physically alive, yes, we're walking all the time. We go to work, we communicate, we relate. But apart from Christ, there's nothing but death. And the ultimate end, of course, is separation from God forever and ever. In this psalm, David understood this. In fact, in verse 9, that's why he prays for righteousness for the priests. He said, listen, you're a holy God. We can't come into your presence unless we're holy too. And so he prays for righteousness for the priests. Why? So they could enter on behalf of the nation and intercede. Right? So they could come into God's presence because God's holy and they're not. And so he prays for righteousness. And he says, may your priests be clothed with righteousness so we can go into your presence. And the answered prayer is so extraordinary. I touched on this a bit. In verse 16, God says, I will clothe her priests with salvation, with Yasha. And the connection here was one in my study. I just sat back in my chair and I went, whoa, 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 because I had not looked at this verse in the Hebrew in this detail. But the word Yasha, how did he clothe us? He clothed us with Yeshua. It's the same root. He clothed us with righteousness, with his son. The very name of Christ is the Lord saves. And so David asked for righteousness and God says, I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to make it one better. I'm going to give you my son who is righteous. And by his grace and his work, he will make you holy. He will what? He'll cover you. He'll cover you. God asked his son, Yahshua, to be our Yasha, our salvation, by going to the cross and taking on hell. And he did that out of his radical love for God and for us. And he says, I will make sure that you are covered, that you are holy. So God says, listen, I'm going to take care of your physical well-being. I'm going to take care of your spiritual well-being. I'm making that oath. I'm going to do it through my son. He says then thirdly, I'm going to take care of your emotional well-being. How so? Through the son's resurrection. Joy, lasting joy. Not emotional moments, but lasting joy is something we struggle with. It's something I struggle with. From a cultural standpoint, we're on these roller coasters, right? Christ, God says, I will bring you joy through the resurrection of my son. How so? In 1 Peter chapter 1, we get this guarantee of everlasting joy as a result of the resurrection. Peter writes, in his, God's great mercy, he, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. And then in verse six, he writes, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And he's saying, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, there is joy for you to have both now and forever. 
Regardless of the trials you're going through, the difficulties you have right now, they're not everlasting. There's hope. The grave that awaits us all is not eternal. There's hope in that. In spite of the suffering and the trials and the physical hardships and the ultimate death that we face, God says, in the resurrection, you have hope and therefore there should be joy. What kind of joy? Joy that causes your heart to sing. If you just stop for a minute and think about it. Whatever time you spend on earth, 30, 40, 100 years, he says, in Christ you will be resurrected to new life and a living hope with all the things that we've talked about. Hopefulness. Now, if you say, you know what, pastor, I'm going to be flat honest with you. I contemplate the resurrection to come. That doesn't fill me with joy because the whole idea seems a bit abstract to me. I mean, the whole idea that I'm going to go into the grave and there'll be a resurrection at the end of time when Christ comes again and he'll raise the living and the dead and our soul be reunited with your, our bodies. It's just, it's just too out there. Sounds too Star Trekky for me, right? A very real practical example for you. At the high school that I coach, at our homecoming game, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a young man who was able to suit up for the first time in his first game scored two touchdowns. That is a wow. <laughs> you think, so what? So what? One year ago, this young man was diagnosed with leukemia. He was so sick, the doctors thought, there's no way this kid's going to make it. No way. And so he spent an entire year, this was the early season last year, he spent an entire year under chemo and radiation. He was so sick. And he'd come out and say hello, and we wouldn't see him for a while. Well, about uh, two months ago, a month and a half ago, he got the clear from his doctor that he could play football again that he could actually live again. And so he came out, and this kid, and he's still suffering from the effects of chemo and radiation. He still has to have treatments. But he comes onto the practice field, you know, and we got kids that are complaining, it's too hot, it's too cold, I'm thirsty, the practice is too long. And this kid just radiates joy. He's in the huddle, he's, he's smiling. Why? Why? I mean, oh, he comes on the field happy, he leaves the field happy. He has a good practice, he's happy, he has a bad practice. He's, happy, he's filled with joy. Why? He'd been resurrected. I mean, in a sense, right? He was, the doctor said, you're probably not going to live. And he lived. And he's thankful. And so joy just oozes out of him all the time. All the time. The Bible says that you were dead. You were dead. And Christ made you alive. And he said, this is not your end. That I'm going to resurrect you in the resurrection to come. We, much more so than this young man, have reason to sing for joy and to have everlasting joy every moment of every day in light of the resurrection of Christ. And Paul said, listen, if Christ wasn't raised, you of all people, (laughs) you're not thinking correctly. But he said, but if he was, then you should rejoice. There should be great hope. We should be people who are always singing, regardless of how bad the circumstances in our, our lives are right now. All right, last one. God says, I'll give you your physical well-being, your spiritual well-being, your relational well-being through the life, death, and resurrection of my son. He said, but I'm going I'm to top it off with this. He said, I'm going to give you the relational well-being in me through the ascension, through the ascension of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and then he rose. But that wasn't it. That wasn't the end of the story, right? For 40 days, he walks the earth <laughs> And he communicates with people. Over 500 people see Jesus Christ in resurrected form. And he's teaching and he's ministering. And then on that 40th day, he's talking to disciples. And what happens? He rose, physically rose. He ascended. You ever seen it done theatrically? It never works. 
right? It's just a bad scene. She's like, it just looks so, there he goes, right? You know, never works. But he rose. He ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, in the passage, the oath is this, in verses 13 and 14. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. And he will like, then why did you leave? I like this. So why did you leave? Why did you go? I mean, you were already in Jerusalem. You're right there. Stay, right? There's the throne. Get on the throne. The Bible tells us that he ascended to be with the Father again, to sit at his right hand, to do a few things, to intercede for us. Yeah, Jesus Christ is interceding for us at this very moment before the Father. The Bible says that he's going to prepare a place for us, which is very encouraging too. You know, Josh, he always talks to me, he goes, what's it going to be like? He wants to know what the room's going to look like, right? He wants to know, you know, is there going to be a football field in the backyard? And how big is it? Great questions. I love that. But the bookend to this verse, the bookend to verses 13 and 14 is Revelation 21, 2 and 3. Let me read it to you. John the apostle says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God forever and ever. It doesn't get any better than that. You want physical well-being good, God wants it for you too. You want to be spiritually healthy, God wants that for you too. You want to be emotionally stable, God wants that. But he's saying, listen, The best thing is this. I'm making a promise that I'm going to come back and I'm going to make a dwelling place here and you're my people and I'm going to bring you in and I'm never going to leave again. I'm never going to leave again. And so Jesus right now is there preparing that place. He didn't didn't leave. It wasn't an exit plan. It was a fulfillment plan. It was part of the covenant that he made with us so long ago that he promises to fulfill. The 132nd Psalm is in the Psalms of Ascent because it tells us in great detail what this covenant relationship is like. It's not a contract. It's not if you be really good, then I'll bless you. And if you're not good, then I'm going to cast you out. It is a gospel that comes through grace and Christ and the cross. Where God says, I'm calling you by name. I'm bringing you into my family. And here's the promise that I'm making and I'm making it to you, and I'm fulfilling it in my son and his blood. Not because I have to, God, but because I desire to. I love this. I desire to come and dwell with you. I pray, and have been praying this week, that you would desire, like David, to come before God as a holy people. That you would confess your sins, and you would turn from them. That you would not let them linger or bring them into a, a holy gathering like this. That you would be a people whose hearts truly sing for joy because of what you know, who you are in Christ. And it wouldn't be something you say, oh, I have to be holy or I have to sing. But you'd want to be holy and you'd want to sing. Why? Why? Because God has made an oath to you. He has promised you. His name is faithful, by the way. He's not going to break his promise like we do. He made a promise to you. He says, I promise your physical prosperity even as your body falls apart, I promise I'll make it right. 
He says, I promise to you spiritual vitality even in the midst of your greatest faith crisis when you think that you've been rejected and you no longer believe and you're no longer in. He says, you are through my son. He says, I promise you emotional stability and joy in your darkest moments. And I promise you a right relationship with me. It doesn't matter how many people have left you alone, how many people have deserted you, how many people have forsaken you. He says, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. You belong to me and I belong to you. And that's part of our covenant relationship. If you are hearing this and you say it's too good to be true, I'm telling you that's the gospel of grace. It is extraordinary. The blessings are innumerable. The presence of Christ is real. Use this psalm as they did for centuries. Read it and remember the oath that David made to God and God made to David. Remember it and then rejoice in it. Christ fulfilled it. Claim it in Christ. His blood makes it sure. Let's pray to that end. Father, um, I recognize that these promises seem too good to be true. That, that somehow, some way, you're going to ensure our physical, spiritual, emotional, and relational prosperity in all those areas. A lot of us just would like one, Lord. And you say, you got them all covered. And not just now, but forever. For those who doubt this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give them assurance. For those who think, no, there's no way this could be possible. I pray that you would show them your son on the cross and the work that he did to make it possible. For my brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord, that we would see that these oaths are real and they are everlasting. That we have a God that does not change his mind because we do. We don't have a God who who lacks faith when we lack faith. He is faithful. He is true. Give us that wisdom, Lord so that we can go through this life as a holy people filled with joy. That we can exercise the oath that David made, not by our power, but by yours, because of the work that Christ has already completed. What a glorious thought that we would be a people like this. We pray, Lord, to that end so that you would be glorified, for you are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.